Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, your host for a very special Lead from the Heart podcast. As a young consultant for McKinsey nearly 40 years ago, my guest today was given a special six-month assignment. He was told, go in search of the best, most progressive and provocative thinking on organizational effectiveness that you can find. Traveling extensively across America, he went on to meet with top CEOs, cutting-edge academics, and even a Nobel laureate before returning with the conclusion that rocked traditional leadership thinking. He came back saying, organizational excellence isn't driven by mathematical formulas or other quantitative tricks. What truly makes companies soar boils down to their culture and how managers support and treat their employees. Now, while we might imagine our guests receive a promotion or even a parade for coming up with such an enlightened conclusion, the truth is he got neither. Instead, many McKinsey traditionalists summarily rejected his findings and defensively called his focus on culture and leadership soft stuff. But many of you know the rest of the story. He and his partner, Bob Waterman, went on to document all of the findings in a book, and that book, In Search of Excellence, went on to sell 3 million copies in just the next four years. And remarkably, I checked, it's still a humongous seller today, and some have called it the best business book ever written. Now, I won't hold back on how incredibly honored I am to have leadership guru and legend Tom Peters join us on the podcast today. He remains, as I mentioned, a guru all these years later and has just published his 17th book, which we're going to be discussing in just a moment. And just a little of his background, Tom has a PhD in organizational excellence from Stanford University, and amongst his innumerable honors, he was just given the Thinker's 50 Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, even if he can't hear you through the ether, I hope everyone listening in will give Mr. Tom Peters a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hello to you, Tom Peters. Thank you, Mark. It is a pleasure to be here, sir, with you. Well, thank you. I know you're in New York. I'm in La Jolla, California. And uh, let me start off by just saying congratulations on your new book. I took last weekend to read it. And for everyone listening in, let me tell you the name of it. It's called The Excellence Dividend, Meeting the Tech Tide with Work That Wows and Jobs That Last. And I saw that you posted on Twitter that it took you two years to write this. So that's quite a commitment. And I want to know, you know, what inspired you to write this and what do you most want your readers to take from this? Well, it actually took me 52 years <laughs> to write it. I started working on it in 2016 and I figured that my first management job was as a young naval officer who landed in August of 1966 in Vietnam, not knowing his left foot from his right foot. And when 2016 came around, it had been 50 years of worrying and thinking about management. So I put together, first of all, a, a 4,096 slide show, because I use PowerPoint in all my presentations, and then took that and started writing around it. And, you know, then as it developed and as I was doing more and more reading about what was going on, is going on, particularly in the technology world, I really wanted to tie what I had been thinking about into the extraordinary changes that we have been and particularly will be confronted with. At about the same time, there was an Oxford University study, many question it, the estimates are all over the map, 
that said, for example, that 50% of American white collar jobs will be threatened by artificial intelligence in the next 10 to 20 years. And as you and I both know, if that actually is the case, there will be riots on the streets and the world will be turned upside down. But I wanted to think about those kinds of things. And the reason I'm allowed out in public and to have conversations with people like you, frankly, is because 36 years ago, I wrote a book called In Search of Excellence. And for reasons completely unknown to my co-author and I, a whole lot of people bought the thing. But it's been a 36-year adventure in excellence. And I don't want to use stupid phrases like beat the technology, but in my opinion, to survive and thrive in the face of this new technology. And I think this is really consistent with your work. We need to be more human than we've ever been before. The differentiators will be the things that are human. There's stuff that the artificial intelligence can do and to be sure it'll get smarter and smarter and smarter over time. But, you know, I start the book out with this silly little example. And my wife is the family gardener. And for a particular hillside, she bought a ton of bushes and trees and so on a couple of years ago. She's the gardener. I'm the waterer. But there are also spaces where the grass gets cut. And so I have to drag a 200-yard hose around. And when the lawn guy, who has a little two-person lawn company, comes and cuts the grass, the first thing he has to do is get my damned hose out of the way. Well, I went out there one day, and there was my garden hose. I hope this doesn't sound silly. Perfectly furled. And if it's perfectly furled, it's a piece of cake to unroll it over 200 yards. If he just pulled the damned hose into a junk pile, it would have taken me forever, and I would have been swearing like an old naval officer. But I really believe that it's the tiny little human touches. Like, even though he's using big mechanical devices, which are modern lawnmowers, et cetera, et cetera, it's the little memorable human touches that stand out. And somebody who read the book, like yourself, said to me, oh, you wrote that book about a guy who furls hoses. And I said, yeah, maybe that should have been the subtitle of the book. <laughs> well, um, I want to ask a couple quick questions here because you've gone into a topic that I think people are sort of wondering about. It's like, do I believe these stats about all these jobs that are going to be going away? And so I want to start by asking you, do you? In other words, do you think the net net is going to be a loss of jobs or do you think that there will be new jobs created and will they be concurrent? What's your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are that history says there will be nets, net jobs created. The difference, according to the gurus I trust, is that the speed of this change is different. In the Industrial Revolution, which among other things led to World War I and World War II, but in the Industrial Revolution, we had decades and decades to, in fact, react to the change. And if you look at the mess that's going on now with Facebook and the elections and so on, we're seeing enormous change, but now it takes 10 years or it takes five years or maybe less. So that, to me, throws the assumption out that it's inevitable that net jobs will be created. On the flip side of that, I think it'll take longer than we think, but the far more important point relative to what I wrote is regardless of whether these big changes take 10 years or 25 years, 
particularly relatively young people, I'm not talking about the four-year-olds or the five-year-olds, I'm talking about the ones who are entering the workforce, my big point is with the change coming, regardless of whether it's fast, slow, or moderate, business has a moral obligation beyond anything it's ever had before to support and develop and train the people who come to work for you. True of that two-person lawn business or true of a 22,000-person business. So, you know, it's it. My, my view is kind of, I guess I mean it the way I'm saying it, it's sort of assume the work worst and help people be prepared. And that's, you know, that's a lot of my message. I, I call it that. I said, number one moral responsibility of a lead. And, and then I say, asterisk, guess what? This is also the way, the best way to retain customers and have high productivity and make money. It's, it's not unlike my understanding of what you've been up to, which says dealing with maximizing, worrying about and caring about the emotional side of things is the world's number one moneymaker. Happy customers, happy employees, focus on excellence is is very, very different if that's if that's your approach. So regardless of the speed of the change, I want us to do the same thing. And the same thing right at the centerpiece of it is moral responsibility. It's really important to remember in this regard, business is what people do by which I don't mean Fortune 500 companies, but I mean small companies, large companies. The way I like to say it is business is not part of the community. Business is the community. And the responsibility of leaders, small business owners or giant CEOs, is just enormous. I just love that you've put it out there and made the assertion that this is all of our responsibility and that companies just can't be migrating into artificial intelligence and robots without thinking of the full implications of not just their own employees, but in terms of what those changes are going to do to society in general, and then taking action to help people. I think that's absolutely marvelous. And then I just want to call out, because I will tell you, I'm a gardener too, and I think that's probably true for many of the people listening in here, that they've all had an experience where somebody surprised them and went above and beyond. And you define that as excellence. And it resonated really strongly with me because there are times when people go the opposite direction and you just you're so underwhelmed by how much little effort it would have taken to have done it really, really well. Yeah. And we're always grateful when we see them done really wonderfully. And that was a perfect example. So I have to say, you sound incredibly young. So you are a very young 75-year-old. I hope we have that recorded on tape. I will use that phrase. <laughs> yeah. Well, bring it home to the wife. I'm sure, yeah, she'll I'm sure she'll appreciate that. But I only mentioned it because you mentioned it. You put it in your book that you're 75 years old. And, and I want to know, what keeps you going and traveling all over the world? I mean, all the different countries you mentioned in your book. And I was exhausted just reading your travel schedule. <laughs> so, you know, what's going on with you? Why do you keep doing this? Well, one answer, and you know this as well as I do, is I'm pissed off. I'm not writing rocket science. I'm writing about furling hoses. If it required third-order differential equations that I learned in my fourth year at engineering school in Cornell in 1964, that's one thing. But what I'm saying is if you say thank you, if you listen, if when you screw up, you say, I'm sorry to take the words out of your mouth, if you just take a couple of minutes to do a little tiny thing, 
those things make the difference. Somebody said to me one time, because I've worked a lot on women's issues, well, Tom, for God's sake, you've been saying it for 20 years, just shut up and move on. And I said, uh-uh, I don't think you understand the meaning of the word new. An idea remains new until the damn thing is implemented. It doesn't just remain new because I wrote about it last week. I shouldn't write about it uh, this week. So I'm frustrated about the simplicity of the topics that I'm writing about and my inability to get through. And so I keep saying them over and over and over again. And the other part of it, and again, from what I know of you, I have a sneaking suspicion it's the same thing. It's really just to turn on to work with people. And I have given about 3,000 speeches. And uh, I think if I've had success as a speaker, it's because I, and this is really the correct choice of words, I desperately fall in love with every audience that I try to connect with. And it's a real effort to have a passionate love affair that lasts 45 minutes or that lasts through a six-hour six speech because we're, we're trying to conquer this thing. And then you know, the best of it I try to collect and put in a book every few years and, and, uh, you know, which I've done in this instance. And, and I keep hammering on that. But you said the most important thing, or you implied it. I think you said it. And I say it many, many, many times in the book. Little is more important than big. You don't have to say thank you to some salesperson who made an $11 million sale who's going to get a bonus and you know people are going to applaud forever. The thank you is for some busy person who's on deadline who takes 10 minutes out to help another busy person who's also on deadline who has a problem that I can help them with. That's when you say thank you. One of the examples we use in the book is the former CEO of Campbell Soup, Doug Conan, who was CEO for 10 years. In those 10 years, he wrote 30,000 handwritten thank you notes. And when I did my calculations, number of work days a year and so on, that's about a dozen notes a day for 10 years. And most of them were for little things. And little things are life's really big things. I mean, you were talking about my wife and so on. If we talk about our relationship with our kids or, or our spouse, it's not the year that you bought your wife or she bought you an automobile. It's just the little teeny touches that you know, demonstrate all over again that you really care about her existence on earth. Well, I don't know about you, but I still have in, you know, my prior career, any time that somebody thought to send me a note like that, I still have them Yep. because they matter. They affect you so deeply. And we forget that on the leadership side, we remember it on the employee side, you know, on the human side, we remember what it means to us, but day to day, we don't think about it. So what a discipline, 30,000. Well, let, let me give you a wonderful example of that. One of the people I talked to for In Search of Excellence back in the in the uh, late 70s was a guy by the name of Tate Elder, who was a division general manager at 3M. A dozen years later, he attended a seminar of mine. He had actually just retired. And he came up to me at one point and he said, Tom, I'm going to tell you a story. You know what this story is, but I just want to remind you of the power of what you said. He said, I had a retirement party. I'm just mimicking your words. He said, I had a retirement party and a guy came up to me with tears in his eyes and thanked me for a little handwritten note that I had sent him 
10 years before that he still had hanging in his cubicle. And you know, this guy was a good Minnesota boy, straightest shooter in the world, no exaggeration. I'm, I'm listening to him tell the story, and I'm tearing up. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just what you said, and, and there's no way that either of us could you know, use the language strongly enough to really illustrate the importance of this. Fantastic story. I want to get a little, if you don't mind, I want to get a little serious for a very good intention here. Okay. You mentioned it a few minutes ago, but you also put it in your book, and I'll set it up this way, that you were an officer in Vietnam and did two tours, which I didn't think they were doing in those days. So that's extraordinary. I guess I'm wondering, how did that, if any, I mean, you even mentioned at the beginning, so I have to anticipate that it had an impact on you, but more specifically, tell us how it shaped your views of life and even of leadership, because you were an officer, you were leading people. Well, the answer is it was the two most influential years of my life. You know, not to put too much detail in because we, we don't have forever. My parents didn't have any money. The Navy paid my way through the Cornell Engineering School. I paid them back with four years. I was trained as a civil engineer. There are a group of civil engineers in the Navy and a group of combat engineers called the Navy CBs. And I went into the Navy CBs. We support the Marine Corps. And I went over to Vietnam, as I said, in August of 1966. I want to start out with a negative, and then I'll talk about some other things. I had a Cornell civil engineering degree. I'm incredibly proud of it. I was not a well-trained engineer. I was an insanely well-trained engineer, but you just put your finger on. So I'm an insanely well-trained engineer. The way I put it to people, I could have redesigned the Verzano narrows bridge with a (laughs) blindfold on and both hands tied behind my back. But suddenly I land in Vietnam. Suddenly I am legally as an officer responsible for the lives of 20 sailors in a detachment that I am responsible for. I wasn't unprepared. I was totally unprepared. You know, I had not been taught. I mean, I think maybe they forced us to go to a psychology course, which all the engineers, you know, looked down their noses at. I came back to Cornell afterwards and I still love the school and they taught me civil engineering. And you don't want to hear the obscenities, which I uttered at the dean. (laughs) I said, you sent me as an incredibly technically well-trained engineer out into a job for which I was completely untrained, had no background whatsoever. And I said, I'll never forgive you, which is a kind of very unchristian statement to make. And so that was, that's kind of number one, the deficit. And to my great delight, my latest couple of Cornell engineering books showed that they're now trying at least to teach a little bit of leadership. But the, the other part of it, which is really important to our discussion I had two deployments. You were basically right with what you said, the way the Navy Seabees did it, nine months in Vietnam, three months home, nine months back over. It would have gone on forever, except I got another assignment. God smiled. I had two commanding officers, a different one for each of the battalions. One of them, including my father, and I say it to my late father without trying to insult him, including my father, my first commanding officer, was the most important mentor I have ever had in my life. The second one was the commanding officer from hell. I call him Captain Day and Captain Knight. The first one's name is Dick Anderson or Captain Anderson, and the second one's name is Voldemort. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's as simple as that. But, you know, 
For example, when Captain Anderson got the junior officers together the night that we landed in Vietnam, he said, boys, I'm going to tell you two things. The Army is run by sergeants. The Navy is run by chief petty officers. He said, your chief petty officers have been around. They know what they're doing. He said, legally, you are an officer. But if you want to have a good deployment, you will do precisely what your chief petty officers tell you to do. And if you don't, I'll hear about it, uh, which incidentally is why all these years later, there is a full chapter in the book, which basically says an organization's full collection of first line supervisors is the number one asset in the enterprise. They are the culture carriers. They are the people who lead to quality. They are the people who lead to retention. They are collectively the gods. So he said, listen to your chiefs. And he said, remember, you are here to help and support your troops. They call you an officer, but what you really are, I mean, he didn't use, I don't think Greenleaf had written his book then, but he basically said, you are servant leaders. And it was just extraordinary to be around him. And he also said, your job in life is to build things. And he said, I don't care what the hurdles are. You're here to get the job done. Well, the way I like to describe the second commanding officer is he would rather have had a perfect report about a job that was not completed than a crappy report about a job that was completed on time. And my one memory of him is, and this is combat engineers. We're trying to do something to help our Marine brothers. My second appointment was an operations officer, and it meant I was, among other things, at the end, responsible for writing the battalion deployment report. And somebody comes into my little office. This is back in the U.S., in Southern California, incidentally, Port Wyneme, just a little south of Santa Barbara, comes into my office and says, Captain Voldemort wants to see you. I almost, his real name almost slipped out. <laughs> uh, Captain Voldemort want, wants to see you. And so I walk in and stand at attention. And he said, Mr. Peters, junior officers are called Mr. in the Navy. Mr. Peters, do you not understand the difference between the word tangible and palpable? And God was not with me on that day. And I burst out laughing, which was not a good thing to do. But the point is, he was trying to teach the difference between tangible and palpable in a perfect report. And the other one was trying to teach me how to work with people, how to develop people, how to listen to my first line supervisors and so on. So that was my leadership school. All of your books and my books and anybody else's books were fundamentally totally unnecessary after those first two years. But it was an incredibly shaping experience, as you implied. Well, it sounds like you needed the juxtaposition of both of them to understand which one oh, yeah. was so much more powerful, well, right? Schwarzkopf said the same thing when, when General Schwarzkopf wrote his uh, autobiography at one point, he said, I was blessed after I got out of West Point with the worst commanding officer in my first battalion known to humankind. And all of my life after that was incredibly easy because I would just say, what would Colonel Jones have done? And then I would do the opposite. <laughs> and it's a joke line, but you know, it's frighteningly close to the truth. I think we've all been there. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've all worked for somebody like that. Yep. So I don't know why, but when I read this expression, I thought, well, it's so simple. And I don't know why I've never used it directly this way. But you, many times through the book, you use the statement, people first. And it just 
very much aligned to what I write about and speak about. And it's your language. And I want to know what it means to you. And you've been preaching it for 40 years. So why do so many people resist it? I mean, you're saying, you know, I'm still out there because people are needing to hear the same message. Why are we resisting this now when we know that it works? Well, I hope you have your keyboard out or a pencil in your hand because the answer I'm going to give you will be profound because I've been asked that question before. And my answer, and I'm not playing games, is I don't have a clue. Mm. You know, at some level, that's the truth. I want to put it in a different way, and this is a strong feeling I have. There might be some people in this world like the late Billy Graham or Tony Robbins who think they can walk into a room with a thousand people and change a thousand lives. If I walk into a room of a thousand people and I influence four or five people to shift the way they're doing things, I think I have had one hell of a good day. So my point with my books, with articles, with blog posts, whatever, with those speeches is I'm not out to change the world. I'm out to help some people do a little bit better at what they do. And I wish I could turn it into a contagion. But there's a quote in the book, and I'm so embarrassed because I don't remember the name of the book the quote came from. I mean, it's in the book, obviously. But there was a guy just like you or me working with a client, and the client was going through a big annual meeting where all these reports from teams and groups were coming in. And as he said, the reports were unbelievable. Their people had done this or their people had done that. And he turned to the CEO at one point and he said, all these things you've done to help people grow and support teamwork. He said, why don't other CEOs talk about this stuff? And the guy turned to him and he said, I think they're embarrassed to talk about it. You know, they want to talk about the marketing tools. Mm -hmm. They want to talk about the financial numbers and they just have great difficulty talking about this. I mean, you know, I've said, the six words that summarize my first book and summarize my life are hard is soft, soft is hard. The plans and the numbers can be messed with and manipulated, as we found out with subprime mortgages in 2007. The, the hard stuff is soft. The soft stuff, the relationships, for heaven's sakes, that's the real hard stuff. That's the stuff that sustains. One of the things, and I'd love to get your feedback on this, even though you're interviewing me, <laughs> is I've said, look, speed is a snare and a delusion. Things are changing fast. We do have to deal with that. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, as the leader of a business, small or large, as the leader of a 10-person team, it's all about relationships, comma, and relationships take time. Investing in relationships is the secret of success of a young officer leading a group of 20 young men. It is the secret of success in gaining the sale. I remember reading this you know, research study 
which said the number one reason that sales pitches fail is too much talking and not enough listening on the part of the pitchman. And, and, and excellence takes time. I, I have a line in the book. I don't expect you to remember it, every line in the book. And, <laughs> and it said, the day that patience dies is the day that excellence dies. Excellence, to get us back to the beginning of our talk, is taking the extra five minutes to furl a little garden hose that the customer, me, is then talking about to you in an audience that goes to people all around the world. Well, you know, just to to respond to you, I heard General Shinseki say one time that if you know your people's story and they know you care about their story, they'll manage with your intentions in mind. Meaning, yeah. right? And so they understand the nuance, they understand the implication, but it's they can read into you and say, what would Tom want me to do in this moment? And that really drives your theory of excellence, right? It's yeah. And it's really that investment in people that if you don't make it, they're they're not going to give that to you. That's my experience. I think that's true. The, the only thing, the only digression I would make is the following. I think hiring is incredibly important. And one of my favorite stories in the book comes from a very unlikely place. The guy, he was a CEO and co-founder of a moderate-sized pharmaceutical company. And when you say the word pharmaceuticals, you don't always think of the terms sweetness and light, to put it mildly. And this guy said, my secret to success is I hire nice people. He said, here's what happens. I interview you. You have got a PhD in advanced biological sciences from UC San Diego, which is, for God's sakes, where the Salk Institute is and so on. You are the smartest guy in the room. I'm just overwhelmed by your intelligence. The, the, our conversation is over, and you now have to do what the CEO calls, this is his language, not mine, run the gauntlet. You will meet 15 people. And they will be assessing you relative to your ability to be part of our culture, to help one another and team members. And each of those 15 people, including the receptionist and the junior person in the finance team who happens to be on your list, has the ability to blackball you, to, in fact, ensure that you don't get a job. And he said, the reason I do that is I really believe that one rotten apple can spoil the barrel called our culture. And I really go crazy over this one when we're talking about leaders. I know this isn't a very scientific way to put it, even though I think there is a lot of science behind it. There are people who get off on people and people who don't get off on people, mm -hmm. people who enjoy being around people and people who don't never put into a per, in a position of leadership at any level, somebody who fundamentally doesn't take joy in helping other people. And I don't think you have to be your age, let alone my age, to say when I'm interviewing somebody, I can feel that, touch that, and smell that. You know, Harvey McKay, who ran McKay Envelope and wrote, you know, all the books that had sharks in the name of it and so on, he said when he was interviewing senior people for a job, they were in Minneapolis. He said when he was interviewing people for jobs, senior people for a senior job, the last test was he took them to a Minnesota Twins game. And he said, I wanted to watch this person just dealing in a normal way with their fellow human beings for three or four hours 
from the parking lot to the popcorn and beer vendor to what have you. And he said that was usually much more valuable than the three hours of sit down, you know, reviewing the position papers they'd written. Totally agree with you. In fact, I think it's one thing that I really came to, to believe was that it's, it's binary. So that if you can't be convinced, this is slightly different than what you're saying, but very much aligned to it. If you're not convinced that the person in front of you cares as much about other people as they care about themselves and their own career and their own recognition and growth and all those kinds of things, you can't put them into a leadership role. You're just never going to succeed. You just gave away one of my dirty little secrets. And that is that I agree with you. I think it is binary. I would like to think they're gradations, but I will stand here on the other side of the microphone and applaud loudly <laughs> as to what you just said. Here, here. <laughs> All right. Well, another thing that you put in your book that I just read recently, and I'm sure some men will probably bristle with this, but these stats that show that women rate higher than men in 12 of the 16 top competencies that go into outstanding leadership. So you put this in your book emphatically. I want to know what can male leaders learn from women and what can women learn from us? Well, I'm going to say a different thing than is sort of suggested by the question, and then I will come back to the question. And partially because I happen to just be tweeting about this. Let's suppose that those statistics that women are better than men on 12 out of 16 leadership areas are accurate. And I happen to think they are because that was just the research study that I showed as an example in there. You know, I could have put 40 studies in there that say basically the same thing. Let's suppose that's roughly right. I am not suggesting that we toss all the male leaders off the bus tomorrow morning or even two years from now. What I am suggesting on for two reasons, one is those leadership skills and one is the fact that women are the premier purchasers of virtually everything, is if you don't have gender balance, you are an idiot for business reasons. I have some social justice beliefs that are terribly important to me, but when I talk about the women's issues in the context of my book, I'm talking about doing business better. And as I said in this tweet, Let's suppose you have a 10-person board of directors. Given my advanced mathematical skills, I'm saying let's take 10 and divide by 2. If 5 out of 10 people on that board are not women, you are missing a bet and doing something stupid. And if you don't believe me, believe my former employer, McKinsey & Company, who did a big study of boards of directors and boards of directors that were gender balanced outperformed those who were not in terms such as 50, and these were giant companies, 56% higher operating profits. And so, you know, the research says women do 12 out of 16 better. The research says that women are better negotiators because they are better to significant degree at this thing called listening and gaining cooperation among others without treating it like privates and sergeants in the army. Women are better salespeople because they listen. And the one that I love, it's my favorite book title in the world. The author is a woman by the name of Lou Ann Lofton, who's part of the Motley Fool team. And the title of the book is Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl and Why You Should Too. And 
Incidentally, Buffett had never heard of the book, and God bless him, when somebody gave him the book, he wrote the first review at Amazon, which was very positive. But again, it's <laughs> the women don't quick trigger the way the men do and try to leap on the next cool idea. A book written by a uh, University of California, San Francisco neuropsychiatrist, and this is the neuro research that we have these days, by day three of life, a baby girl is making three times more eye contact with her fellow human beings than you or I did when we were day three. And all that is, is it's a metaphor for engagement with one's fellow human beings. And you and I have spent the last several minutes talking about effective leadership in terms of people who care about people, people who listen to other people. And I think those are demonstrated traits that women have to a more significant degree than men have. I do think we can pay attention to it. I do think men can get better. I do think there is a bell-shaped curve, and there are some women who don't listen worth a damn and some men who do listen very well. But the case is, in mm -hmm. general, we ought to have a very significant share, I would say 50% or maybe even more, of women on our executive teams and in managerial roles as well. And the second half of the story is the research is clear that women do buy not a lot, but damn near everything, about 85% of consumer products. And then in today's world in the United States, over 50% of professional purchasing officers are women. So they buy all the commercial products as well. They buy commercial, they buy consumer, they buy everything. And my line there is I say, I want a squint test. I'm going to look at a picture of the executive team. And when I squint, I'm not counting. I'm not doing quotas. When I squint, the composition of the executive team ought to look roughly like the composition of the market. And, and, and thinking about where you are in La Jolla, for example, I think it was PepsiCo who following the same thing, the Hispanic population in California in general, Southern California in particular, is incredibly high. And Pepsi did a squint test and said, holy smokes, we really are wildly underrepresented with Hispanics at the senior level. And it's not quotas. It's just mm -hmm. good sense. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, Tom, time for a quick departure from this incredible discussion. We're now going to break away for a segment that we call the Heartbeat Round. Our listeners are really interested in getting to know our guests more personally. So I'm going to ask you 20 questions in rapid fire pace and just give me the answer that instinctively comes to you for each question. So I'm scared to death, but I will do my best. <laughs> All right. Answer these in a heartbeat. So here we go. What's the newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? The Washington Post. Quality you admire most in other people? Give a damnism. The activity that makes you, Tom Peters, come most alive. Hanging out with my two kids, my two grandkids, and especially my dogs. Awesome. And my wife. Oh, yeah. Good save there, Tom. Greatest book you've ever read. Uh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I will give you not the answer that you want, which is specific. Any of the hundred greatest books of fiction that I've read. I think you do good work and I do good work, but I, uh, I'm just amazed at the quality of writing that one sometimes finds. My colleagues and I here were talking about a recent book called All the Light You Cannot See, and literally mm -hmm. every paragraph is a piece of pure art. I've read it. It's magnificent. Yeah. Carrot or stick? 
Carrot. Best coach in professional or collegiate sports today? No, I'm not going to give you the answer to that. My next door neighbor years ago in Silicon Valley was Bill Walsh, the 49ers mm. coach who I adored every breath he took. So you're going to have to settle for Walsh. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, excellent. The quality that you think derails the most leadership careers? People who do not really appreciate the accomplishment of their fellow human beings who are in their charge when they are a leader. Meditation practice, yes or no? No is the honest answer. I do I do a little bit from time to time, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get caught caught in a lie this near the end of the conversation. <laughs> you don't want to be lying about meditation that's, practices. That's right. Yeah, it's true. The person today who's having the most positive impact on society. Wow. An unknown second grade teacher mm. in La Jolla, where you live, or Dartmouth, Massachusetts, where I live who just cares so much about her 19 kids that it is beyond belief. Or Oklahoma City. Or Oklahoma Kentucky. City. I'm absolutely. 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 Suit or business casual? Business cat. Uh, no, business casual is far too sooty as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> How about sweatpants, sweatshirt, and shorts in the summer? Good thing this is just an audio podcast. Um, <laughs> world leader of any era, business, government, spiritual that you most admire. You know, my answer is the cheap answer, but I believe that during my lifetime, I would have to pick Mr. Mandela. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received. Whatever combination of things my mother gave me, which added up to good manners, <laughs> open doors for people, say thank you and be polite. One thing most people don't know about you. Oh, my heavens. I don't think people know very much about me. That, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Too hard. All right. I love you dearly, but I'm taking a pass on that. <laughs> Favorite band or singer? Without any question whatsoever, Queen. Company today whose leadership practices that you most admire? There's a company that does rocks and driveways. Skip Potter is the boss in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, and uh, I'm going to give him my vote. Great. I'm not going to give one of the big company CEOs the vote. Fantastic. What's the quote that best captures your life philosophy? I don't know whether it's a quote. It's absolutely positively give your all to whatever you do. My belief about a speech is at the end of a speech, if you don't stagger off the stage and barf, you really weren't giving your all to your audience and you know, <sighs> people come out to listen to you. So you just got to care. I'm giving one this weekend, so that's good. I'll remember yes. that. Yeah, bring, bring your that's, I never quite thought about it like that, but, yeah. uh, but that's that's kind of how you feel. So very good. Well, you know, and it's so tragic and I identified with it so much. You know, fortunately, I don't do the drugs or the booze. Robin Williams was that way. And he had a lot of other things going on. I, mean, I loved Robin Williams, but they said at the end of a show, you know, he'd have a high for two minutes and then he would just collapse because he had given everything of himself as a human being. And I think because of the clinical depression and the drugs and so on, we had the horrible ending. But there was no question that whatever is way above 110 percent is what is what he always gave to any audience. Do you have a favorite podcast that you listen to? No, I don't very much. I'm a reader. Okay. I mean, other than yours. I mean, of course. Thank you for that. Thank you. I wish I had a plug bell. Very good. What are you working on? What's the skill improvement you're working on right now? Learning more and more and more, if I can, about the new technologies and making, trying my damnedest to make sure they don't get completely out of my control from an intellectual standpoint. 
Two last questions. What's the life lesson you wish you'd learned a whole lot earlier in life? That you'd be a lot more fit if you'd eaten a lot less. (laughs) (laughs) I've had weight problems since the day I was born. Really? Yeah. I'm one of those people who could be called Mr. Yo-Yos. There are some of those old videos that I would not want you to look at. Well, then we won't. Okay. Thank you. Your proudest life accomplishment, sir. Having an incredible opportunity to fully engage as a human being with millions of people around the world who are trying to get a little bit better at what they do. Well, thank you, Tom. Your answers, as usual, were quite provocative. And now, if I can ask you to stay just a few minutes more, I have a few more final questions I'm really anxious to ask you. Absolutely. Through all of your years of 3,000 speeches, that's a big number, all the different CEOs of companies that you've met and interacted with, tell us the one that stands out as the God. I'm sorry to use it that in term, but yeah. you know, you know what I mean? Well, I'm going to answer in two ways. The first answer is to not answer, and then I'll try it on the second answer. One of the problems, and I will not accuse you of this, but if there is a guru class of which you are a part, if there is a guru class and it really irritates me at myself first and foremost, that almost all of our writings are about Fortune 500 and FTSE 100 companies. And the real reality is 80% of my and your fellow Americans and 80% of Japanese and 80% of Brits work in small and medium-sized companies, and we pay damn little attention to them. And so I'm going to give you a name, which is associated with a big company, but the reality is there are thousands of CEOs of seven-person and 75-person companies who are, to use your inappropriate term, which I will inappropriately (laughs) use too, are gods with a lowercase g. So when we talk about leadership principles, management principles, leaders who we think are wonderful, you know, I, I dedicate the new book to about a dozen people, and three of the people I dedicate the book to are people who are in boring industries with middle-sized companies who are performing magic. And so I'm mainly evading who is that one person If I go back a million years to that research for In Search of Excellence, I think it would be a guy by the name of Jim Curtis, and he was the chief executive officer of Johnson & Johnson. And J&J has run into problems here and there, and this is a long time ago, but Johnson & Johnson really did live from top to bottom by the J&J credo. And the credo put communities and employees first and said profit, in fact, is a result, a derivative of great communities, engagement, great employees. Whenever Jim would be in a meeting with 25 senior people, the first half of the meeting would be focused directly on the credo and the degree to which it was was being observed and so on. So, you know, Jim and that first commanding officer of mine in Vietnam would probably be on my top two list. And I really am being a jerk when I say this uh, in 2018 in April. Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't. Did I just say that? I think you did. Oh, damn. You wouldn't make your list? No. No. Listen, it's the same thing I started with. Leadership is about moral responsibility, first and foremost, in a business, in a for-profit business. 
It's about moral responsibility. And when Mr. Zuckerberg was having trouble figuring out whether or not he was willing to go to Congress, I was appalled. It's his duty. I don't care about Facebook. It is his duty as a citizen who has responsibility for this enormous company to go before his congressman. You might think or I might think my congressman is a clown or what have you. And it's not because I went to Vietnam, but I believe that I am a member of a community called the United States, and we have a constitutional document that was made in 1787. And those of us, you and I and Mr. Zuckerberg, have moral responsibility to our nation as well as our local communities. And part of that responsibility is to show your face in the face of some of the 535 elected representatives in the Senate and the House. I, I just believe that. I'm, I'm an old school moralist on this, and I may have been born as, and raised as a Presbyterian, but I'd have to admit that I don't spend a lot of time in church, so it's not a religious belief. It's a community in a, oh God, I can't believe I'm talking like this. It is a community of man belief, or men and women, to go back to the earlier discussion. Well, the thing that you've just done is exactly what I was hoping, and even your preface about all these these unsung CEOs that are running smaller companies, they're doing remarkable things. That's absolutely the case. But I, I also think what you did is you fleshed out to start with, you fleshed out the characteristics and qualities of the CEO of Johnson & Johnson and, and his thought process and how values lead the way. I mean, you're really defining that as the leadership that you admire, but you're also defining the leadership that you admire through Mark Zuckerberg. And that's a very current example that everyone can respond to. So well done, sir. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was hoping you would do here. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that leads us back to your book here. And actually, I think a common thread in probably all of your books is this idea of excellence. And you told us the Gardner Hose story. I want to kind of end with why are leaders wise to demand excellence at every level of the organization? I'm setting you up. Well, among other things, because it's a turn-on. It's a turn-on to provide the excellence. I think Southwest Airlines does a heck of a good job. And I actually did a television show years ago with Herb Kelleher, their co-founder and famous CEO. And Colleen Barrett, a woman who I think started out in the secretarial role and who became the president of Southwest Airlines, you know, which tells us something in and of itself, said, when we're hiring people, we hire for listening, caring, smiling, saying thank you, and being warm. And she said it holds at least as much for pilots as it does for the flight attendants and the people who are at the desk working with passengers. So I'm flying from Albany, New York to Washington, to Baltimore, Washington International, to BWI. We're ready to go. Plane came in late with the pilots on it, so they are rushing to the gate, and of course we want to take off on time. At the gate, along with the passengers like me, as you and I have both seen, and is almost always the case, are half a dozen people in wheelchairs. The pilot is rushing to get on the plane, but he goes up to the woman in the first wheelchair and says, would you mind if I took you down the jetway? I have been on 9,000 flight legs roughly. I've never seen that happen before. So the question is, how do we create enterprises where that, that is excellence? 
I mean, you can tell me the iPhone is excellent, and I would probably agree with you on some dimensions. You can tell me that, you know, whatever, whatever is excellent, the man on the moon, that is excellence, and it is human excellence, and it is differentiating profit-generating excellence. And so, you know, it, it is just, it's so much, I'm just so determined on this topic. And we did start with the garden hose. It is the little teeny things which say, you know, I said, what does that mean? It's a huge billboard that covers all of Interstate 5 near you. And the billboard says, we care. And it says, asterisk, excellence at work. And, you know, that's what it's about to me. You know, I'll talk forever about garden hoses and wheeling a person in a wheelchair down the jetway. That's that's my kind of excellence. And, you know, I'm a businessman, I'm a capitalist, and it's a hell of a good way to grow a business and make money. Well, you know, you mentioned Southwest. I admire them because they've got a heart as their logo and they've got LUV as their stock symbol. So I love the LUV. And there's a genius behind that because, you know, if you're that person in a wheelchair and you're going home and telling anyone and everyone who will listen to you that the pilot of the plane rolled you down the, the alleyway onto the plane, I mean, what a fantastic story. But obviously... That wouldn't have happened if the culture wasn't so caring. Absolutely. Right? That's your people first yeah. example. That's right? your people first, and it's hiring people for listening, caring, smiling, saying thank you, and being warm. Uh, almost every business should think about doing it that way, I would advise. Well, you know, you'd have a hell of a lot more fun at work. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's look at it selfishly. If you were hanging out around people like that, it would be a pleasure. I'm sure everybody has bad days, including Mr. Kelleher, but my comment about that is that unless you were born with a silver spoon, which I sure as heck wasn't, statistically, and even though you adore your family, statistically, you will spend more hours at work, more waking hours at work than you will at any other function in your life. And so if you, strong language, excuse me, if you piss away your working life, to a significant extent, you pissed away your life. Because statistically, that's where you spend your time. Well, we'll end it there. So I want to turn the mic over to you now and uh, just ask you, Tom, is there any final thoughts? We're really talking about leading from the heart, but we're talking about people first, any language you want to use. <laughs> any final thoughts if you, know, if you could get through to one person or four people in this podcast? What's the message? Well, maybe it's a funny way. My favorite four letters in the English language, which I did learn at Hewlett Packard long ago, are MBWA or managing by wandering around. It's a lovely phrase, a literal phrase, but for me, it's a metaphor of leaders who are in touch. My wife and I are very lucky. We don't go to San Diego during the North American winter, but we do go to New Zealand during the North American winter. And I was in New Zealand at our little house on Golden Bay in the South Island. And it's really horrible to think that you're on the beach in, in New Zealand and you're still thinking about in search of excellence and the excellence dividend. But I got to thinking about MBWA, this managing by wandering around. So why do you wander around? Well, you wander around to see what conditions are at the front line. You wander around to learn stuff. And I hate words like epiphany. But then I had an epiphany, and I think it's relevant to our discussion, to the book, and to all the people who are listening to us. And the epiphany was, the reason you do MBWA is selfish, you do it because it's fun. 
And as a leader, if it's not fun at 1 a.m. in the morning to hang out in the distribution center with the frontline employees in the distribution center, then do your company, yourself, and the planet a favor, go back to the office and write your letter of resignation. I think the kinds of things that you talk about, and we talk about almost chapter and verse the same things, I think the things that you talk about and that I talk about, which indeed generate profit and growth, are about the fun of being around your fellow human beings and helping them grow, which in turn means our communities grow. It's, you know, the last word is, wow. You know, we say, business is business and business is business. Business is, it's people. It's just people. And the joy of accomplishing things is what it's all about or what it can be all about. And, and I really hope, particularly among perhaps the younger people who are, who are listening to us and, you know, the millennials aren't going to have lifetime jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But every day is an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And everybody can be a leader regardless of what their job title is. When you give somebody a helping hand, you're behaving as a leader does. Tom Peters, I can't tell you how extraordinary you are as a human being and as a leader. And, and then you add in all the other stuff that you do with your books and your speaking. But just the energy that you convey is fantastic. You're a very gracious and very generous person. And I don't know that many people outside of seeing those old videos from Search of Excellence actually get to hear you very often separate from the companies that bring you in. So this is just a treat for all of us and an honor for me personally. I wish you, on behalf of everyone listening, great success with your book. And thank you again for joining us. Well, I would return every one of those words of compliment to you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I do know your work. And I don't do throwaway lines and say I've enjoyed something if I haven't. So the answer is it's been a great pleasure for me as well. It means a lot to me. And uh, I wish you great success with this book. And Thanks. it's fun tweeting with you too. <laughs> okay, take, thanks Take care. Bye-bye. Now, before we end, as always, I'd like to thank my friend Ken Boynton, my producer Eric Oz, and web manager Randy Yant for all of their great work. And over the first few sessions, I've also been terribly remiss by not previously thanking Mind for Life podcaster Jeff Bogusik for his generous guidance. I have to tell you, establishing a new podcast is surprisingly complicated, and I couldn't have done it without friends like him. And please know how very grateful I am to you for tuning in and for helping to promote this show. I also hope these early sessions will encourage you to subscribe. And just a reminder, Tom Peters' new book, The Excellence Dividend, is available on Amazon.com and wherever books are sold. And the same goes for my book, Lead from the Heart, which I'm proud to announce is now being taught at a seventh United States university, the University of Iowa's Graduate School of Business. So until next time, never forget, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 